Continuing our theme of the Grinch, uh, a few days ago, you wouldn't have wanted to touch me with a 39 and a half foot pole. Uh, the reason being uh, that I struggled with a cold all week, uh, and as you can hear, my voice is still somewhat recovering, uh, so I'd appreciate your, uh, your patience and your understanding uh, as I preach this morning. I might need to clear my throat or take a drink of water here and there, um, and I'm really going to sound great at caroling tonight, so, uh, so thanks for your understanding with that. Now, last week, we started a new sermon series here at Prairie View Christian Church, the 2016 Prairie View Christian Church Holiday Gift Guide. And the reason we're doing this is because we know how hard it can be to find the perfect gift for that person you love. So we're here to give you a few ideas to consider. The first gift we discussed is the gift of value, or you might call it human dignity. What we mean by that is that every single human being is created in the image of God. And that even in our sin, we have God-given worth. As a result of that, God expects that we treat people bearing his image with dignity and respect. That's how Jesus treated people, even people whom his culture viewed as less valuable than others. That included Gentiles, the unclean, the sick, the poor, and even those guilty of great sin. I pray that we would treat people the way Jesus treated people. It's a wonderful gift to show and tell people that they matter to God and that they matter to us. But the life of Jesus tells us more than just how to treat people. It also tells us of God's radical love for sinners. That God would send his son untainted by sin, perfectly reflecting his image as God in the flesh to suffer the ultimate indignity of the cross in order that we might be cleansed healed and restored to the family of God, that we might be forgiven. Now, speaking of being forgiven, that's where we are this morning. The overarching theme of forgiveness permeates just about every page of the Bible. Time after time after time in the Old Testament, God forgives sinful Israel. And every time God does this, he knows full well that one day Israel will betray him again. And yet again, they will be in need of his forgiveness. Now, if you sit here this morning as a Christian, God has already given you that gift of forgiveness. It's through what Christ did on the cross that sinners like me and sinners like you are forgiven. And when we realize the weight of this gift, I pray that we couldn't help but share it with the people around us. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. That's our primary text this morning. We'll start in verse 21. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide underneath our chairs and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any reading from Matthew 18, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thankful, thank you for all that you've given to us, not just Here in this life, materially, um, food and water and clothes and shelter, all the things that we need to live here. But thank you for the gifts that you've given us in eternity, the gifts that last, the gifts that stand the test of time, the gifts that we can be truly thankful for. So, Father, I pray that as we come under your word this morning, that you would give us open hearts, open minds, open ears by the power of your spirit that your word would speak to us however your word needs to speak to us this morning. Some of us need to be encouraged. Some of us need to be convicted. Some of us need to be challenged. 
And I pray that wherever we are, that your word would speak to us how you see fit. Father, we pray for all the requests that we've mentioned uh, over the past several weeks, whether it's in our bulletin or on the chalkboard outside or whether it's in emails or small groups. Uh, We just lift up those requests to you. Watch over those people. Watch over those circumstances. Uh, We are thankful that you are powerful, you are sovereign, uh, but you are also good. And that gives us such joy and such hope and such confidence, regardless of what's going on around us. So, Father, be with us this morning. Be with us this evening as we Christmas carol uh, at Northridge. I pray that we would bring people joy and um, just really bring a light uh, in a place where maybe people... Uh, are tempted to ignore the people who live there. Uh, So, Father, watch over us this morning, watch over us this evening, watch over our ministry here at Prairie View. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus teaches his disciples about resolving conflict within the church. If a fellow believer is guilty of sinning against you, here's how to set things right. First, confront the person one on one. If that doesn't work. Confront the brother again, but this time bring a small group of fellow believers to ensure fairness. And then if that doesn't work, bring the conflict, bring the sin before the whole church. Now, ideally, of course, the conflict is resolved quickly and painlessly. But if resolution doesn't come, even after the whole church seeks to hold this person accountable, Jesus says you are to no longer consider that person a brother or a sister, but like a Gentile or tax collector. The relationship just simply won't be the same. Now, on a quick side note, that doesn't justify harassment or mistreatment, treating them like a sinner or a tax collector. I mean, after all, we've seen how Jesus treats sinners, Gentiles and tax collectors. He's quite loving towards those people. But unsurprisingly, this conversation about conflict and trying to resolve these different disagreements or bring people to repentance of sin, this conversation sparks a question in Peter's mind, which we see in verses 21 and 22. The question that Peter asks has to do with forgiveness. Now, the way Peter asks the question, Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother? The way he words that shows that Peter already has an answer in mind. He clearly expects Jesus to acknowledge that there is a line. And once a brother crosses that line, once they've wronged you so many times, then you don't have to forgive them anymore. Peter even makes his own suggestion of seven times, seven chances at forgiveness. That's what you get. Peter thinks that's a reasonable suggestion. And that amount may even be generous compared to what others in his culture would have said. Some maybe would have said three chances or five chances. Peter says seven. But then Jesus responds not with seven, but with 70 times seven. Some translations say 70 plus seven. Now you read that and you may think, 
Okay, the limit is either 77 chances, because that's 70 plus 7, or 490 chances. That's 70 times 7. I'll write that down, and I'm going to assume that 77 is probably a much better translation, right? Well, that actually misses the point. In Jesus' world, the number 7 represents completion, totality, perfection. In other words, Jesus is not suggesting 77 chances at forgiveness or even 490 chances at forgiveness. Jesus is suggesting complete, total, perfect forgiveness. Forgiveness without limits. Now, that doesn't mean the relationship won't change. Like he said in verses 15 through 20, there may come a point where you simply have to view a person as a Gentile or a tax collector after being wronged so many times. If you're wrong by someone financially, chances are you're not going to go back into business with them. You can forgive them, but you're not called to be naive. But either way, maybe Jesus sees some confusion in Peter's eyes after his response. I mean, what do you mean? No limits to forgiveness. If I just keep on forgiving people over and over and over, I'm going to get walked on. I'm going to get manipulated. I'm going to end up being used. Peter clearly has a hard time grasping this. We might as well. But that's why Jesus tells a story to help Peter and to help us understand. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. The story begins with a servant summoned before his king. The king wants to balance the books, which means it's time for the servant to pay up on his debt. Now, the problem, of course, is that the servant can't repay his debt. Because of that, the king has every legal right to sell this man and his family into what is likely permanent slavery. This man will lose everything. But then at the very last moment, the servant begs for the king's mercy. He insists that he will pay back the debt. He just needs a little bit more time. And out of pity, the king spares him from a life of slavery. But then even more shockingly, the king forgives the man's debt entirely. Now, it sounds simple, right? The servant is in debt. He begs for forgiveness. And the king is a wonderful example of mercy. But before we move forward in the story, let's do some math. And I'm going to take a drink of water. Again, thank you. I appreciate your patience. (coughs) All right. 
Let's do some math. That's what you came here for on Sunday morning, right? According to our story, the servant owes 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Now, one talent, okay, one of them, that equals 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii is 1,000 weeks of earnings, assuming a six-day week, because, of course, you're going to practice the Sabbath. 1,000 weeks of work. That's almost 20 years worth of wages. One talent. 20 years of work. One talent. This servant owes 10,000 talents. So if you do the math, you know what that adds up to. Just under 200,000 years of wages for your average worker in Jesus' day and age. You see, just like Peter with his original question, Jesus intentionally uses outrageous numbers to get his point across. 490 chances at forgiveness, in other words, unlimited. 200,000 years of wages, in other words, a debt that cannot possibly be repaid. So how should this servant respond to the king's offer? If he doesn't drop dead right there from a heart attack, he ought to be singing from the rooftops, right? He ought to be like Scrooge after being visited by the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. A changed man. He ought to be the most joyful, generous, and forgiving man on the planet after an experience like this. But, fresh off his new lease on life. This forgiven servant goes and finds another servant who owes him money. The shoe is now on the other foot. Instead of being the one in debt, this servant is the one who wants his money now. And does he emulate the forgiving king who showed him mercy? No. He is merciless for his 100 denarii. He's violent. He's cruel. And he throws the second servant in jail. Now let's do some math again. The second servant owes 100 denarii. You know what that adds up to? Just under four months of wages. So get this. The man who was just forgiven 200,000 years of wages refuses to forgive the man who owes him just under four months of wages. That ridiculous number that Jesus uses, 10,000 talents, that doesn't just show how great the servant's debt was to the king. It also shows how hard his heart is and how thick his skull is as well. Let's finish the story in verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. 
So the king hears what has happened. He's horrified, insulted even, that the man he forgave so much of acts in such a wicked manner. He throws the unforgiving servant in prison until he should pay off his debt, which again, 10,000 talents, he's not going to pay off that debt. But he throws the servant in prison because he clearly didn't value the forgiveness that the king had shown him. He clearly, clearly didn't grasp the weight of this forgiveness, of this mercy. And then look again at verse 35, Jesus's final words in the parable. Do those words sound familiar? If they do, you're probably thinking of the Lord's Prayer. What we read there in Matthew 6, starting in verse 9, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The moral of the story is just as clear as it is challenging. Disciples of Jesus, people who have been forgiven an insurmountable debt of sin by the king of the universe, we are in no position to withhold forgiveness from the people around us. Paul puts it like this in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul says that we've been given a new identity in Christ. We have been raised with Christ. The old version of us is dead, but the new version is alive. And what comes as a result of that? Well, Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. According to Jesus... And according to Paul, the thought of a disciple refusing to forgive is utterly ridiculous. That thought is just as ridiculous, just as unrealistic as the parable of the unforgiving servant. As disciples of Jesus, forgiveness is not something we just take or leave. It's not something that we offer sometimes, but not others, to some people, but not others. And even deeper than that, if we really have been raised with Christ, as Paul says we have been, if the old version of us really, truly is dead, then forgiveness is not just something we do. Forgiveness is who we are. We owed God a far greater debt than anyone on this planet could ever owe us. And yet God forgives. 
Therefore, we forgive. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Paul again writes there, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul knew a thing or two about forgiveness. He'd been on the receiving end of forgiveness in Acts chapter 7. As Paul, still known as Saul at that time, as Saul oversees Stephen's execution for the faith, the very first martyr, Stephen's dying request is that God would not hold the sin of his murderers against them. But Saul wasn't just forgiven by Stephen. Even more significantly, he was forgiven by the king. He was forgiven by God. In Acts chapter 9, Saul comes face to face with the risen Christ. And in that moment, Saul realizes that this whole time he thought he was doing God's work. He was actually persecuting God's son. Now, at that moment, when you're standing there face to face with the risen Christ, you're realizing just how wrong you were this whole time. You're probably thinking back to Stephen in that moment. What do you think is going through Saul's mind? Saul's likely thinking that he is a dead man walking. His days are numbered. And yet, that's not what happens. God forgives him. And not only that, God calls Saul into his service. He's given a new name. Paul. But more importantly, he's given a new identity in Christ. Paul is forgiven. Now, do you think Paul would ever forget that experience? Probably not. Here we are late in Paul's life. And as he's writing to Timothy, he still just can't get over the fact that God could forgive someone like him. The foremost of sinners. In 2015, soon-to-be President Donald Trump was being interviewed about his faith, as just about every candidate for president is at one point or another. And as someone who grew up Presbyterian, Trump was asked if he'd ever asked for God's forgiveness. Trump's response was this. I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. A few moments later, referring to communion. When I drink my little wine, which is about the only wine I drink, and have my little cracker, I guess that is a form of asking for forgiveness. And I do that as often as possible because I feel cleansed. I think in terms of let's go on and let's make it right. 
Almost a year later, Trump was asked a very similar question. But this time, his response was a little bit different, perhaps a little bit better. Trump's response was this. I will be asking for forgiveness, but hopefully I won't have to be asking for much forgiveness. Now, I'm not trying to pick on Donald Trump. We should pray that he really is growing in his understanding of how much he needs God's forgiveness. We should pray that he understands God's forgiveness only comes through Christ's death on the cross. But at the same time, let's be honest. I imagine if Paul were asked that same question, have you ever sought God's forgiveness? Paul's response would probably be a little bit different. Are you kidding me? Of all sinners, I'm the foremost. I am the CEO of Sin, Inc. What do you mean? Have I sought God's forgiveness? God had every right to kill me back on that road near Damascus because I owed a debt that I could never repay. I directly persecuted God's son. And yet God forgave me. But Donald Trump's not the only person whose reflections on God's forgiveness fall short of Paul's. Often yours do and often mine do. Sometimes we're tempted to give insufficient answers at the thought of God's forgiveness. Maybe we say things like, well, yeah, I need God's forgiveness, but not as much as that guy. Or sure, I have sin to repent of, but no sin as bad as hers. Of course, I've sinned in the past, but I'm a much better person now. Sure, I owed God a debt, but that's what Christ is for, right? So why not treat myself now and... Ask for more forgiveness later. Those responses aren't sufficient. Our responses ought to be the same as Paul's. That of sinners, I am the foremost. I am the worst. And yet God forgives. And I pray that would lead us to worship the way it led Paul to worship. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When Stephen showed mercy to his murderers, he didn't just make those words up on his own. Stephen was echoing the words Jesus spoke at his own death on the cross. Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus did not need anyone's forgiveness. He never did anything wrong, and yet he forgave anyway. Like the king in the parable, God the Father forgives a debt that no sinner could ever repay. Paul's forgiveness, your forgiveness, my forgiveness, they don't come cheap. It costs the all-sufficient sacrifice of God's Son. And while forgiveness is part of who we are now as Christians, that doesn't mean that it always comes easy. Giving it requires mercy when we could get payback instead. Receiving it requires the humility to admit we're wrong when we could just stick to our guns. But I pray this morning that God would continue teaching us to forgive as we have been forgiven. So this Christmas, give that gift of forgiveness. No conditions, no limits, no leveraging. Forgive the person who wronged you. 
Ask for forgiveness from whom you need it. Share the gift of forgiveness that God has already shared with you through Christ. And keep in mind that the cost Christ paid for your forgiveness is far greater than any debt that anyone in this life could ever owe you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word tells us about who you are. It tells us about your character. It tells us not only that you're powerful, not only that you are just, not only that you are in charge, not only that you create, but your word tells us that you are gracious and you are loving and you are kind and you are good and you are forgiving. And so, Father, I pray this morning that as we walk out of here and every day ahead, that we would never stop being in awe of the forgiveness that you've shown us. That like Paul, days and weeks and months and years after we come to know you, we would still just not be able to get over how good and merciful you are. I pray that we would show that same mercy, that same forgiveness to those around us. We know that as sinful people, sinful humanity, we will be wronged and we will also be guilty of wronging others. So I pray in those moments that through the power of your spirit, because you are shaping us and transforming us, because you've given us a new identity as forgiving people, I pray that we would forgive others. I pray that we would ask for forgiveness when we need it. I pray that your kindness and your mercy would shape our hearts, our attitudes, our minds, and our deeds. I pray that we would emulate our king who forgave us instead of withholding forgiveness from others. Thank you for your son whose purchase of our forgiveness required his life, required his body, and required his blood. But thank you that he willingly offered himself up for our forgiveness and that he rose from the grave and that because of what he did, we can be forgiven by you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.